All right, so Hannah is going to read from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That's been our passage of focus with this section for the past several weeks that we've been in it. I will open us up in a word of prayer before she reads from that passage. But in the meantime, make sure you are open to the passage that Hannah will be reading from Scripture. And if you have a workbook, make sure you're on the right page as well. Well, Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Our Father, it is a joy to be back together today to study your word and to discuss the rich truths from sacred Scripture that are rooted and grounded in your redemptive work in time and space in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Over the past several weeks, we've been learning about the deity of Christ and how that is revealed in history in the person and work of Christ, how it's testified to in your word and how it is defended and championed by your people in generations past, namely during the patristic era of church history. And Father, today as we look to the historical witness of Christ's deity in conjunction with the biblical witness of the person and work of Christ, we ask, Father, that your spirit will guide our conversation today, that you would provide illuminating grace to Help us to accurately interpret your word and to to have rich and edifying conversations to help us further behold the glory of Christ so that we might love you more and so that we might walk in deeper obedience and in greater conformity to Christ's likeness all the days of our life. I thank you for those who are here today. I do pray, Father, that you would move in power in their lives as a result of their study of your word and their reflecting of your word in contexts such as today. We pray for your blessing on this time. May it be worship and may it be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Roman numeral four, the witness of history, the patristic affirmation. Hannah, kick us off with that passage and we will go from there. Very good. And just by way of review, who is the word that John is describing in the opening verses of his gospel? Jesus, right? He is the word of God and he himself is God, right? In that passage, you have the, um, the isness, right? God, uh, the word is God. Um, and then you have the withness. He is with God. So you have the affirmation of Christ as God, but you also have the affirmation that God exists in a plurality of persons, um, namely in this context, Father and Son, and as we know from uh, the rest of Scripture as well, the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Godhead. Well, let me read as we get started today, as I'm sure you've noted if you brought your workbook today, we, we have a lengthy list of quotes from the patristic era, really going back as early as 117 A.D. at the latest. Um, So, you know, that's literally 20 years tops, maybe even um, closer to the death of John the Apostle. But at least 20 years from his death, you have early affirmation that Jesus is God. And then over the next couple of centuries, we have other figures 
that affirm the deity of Christ that we're going to be looking to today. Uh, This is building off of the last two weeks of our lessons in Sunday school, which is when we went to uh, 10 key evidences from Scripture that affirm the deity of Christ. And you'll recall that we spent two weeks going through those evidences. Let me just review those before we dive into today's study, just to give you the context of what we're going to be focusing on. We found from Scripture that the deity of Christ is proclaimed through divine prophecy, divine existence, the divine name, divine authority, divine power, divine ownership, divine exaltation, divine titles, divine unity, and divine affirmation. We looked at probably 50 to 60 passages over the past two weeks uh, to substantiate each of those evidences found in Scripture regarding Christ's deity. And today we're going to look at how those evidences were also confessed throughout church history uh, in the earliest generations following the time of the apostles. So with that in mind, let's begin by, let me read a, a little introductory paragraph here. And then we're going to begin working our way through each of those 16 quotes from patristic theologians. And uh, we're going to have some conversations about what they had to say in each of those quotes. So uh, the paragraph I want to read to get us started here, just to orient our minds on what we're going to be focusing on today, says this. This is from Dr. Nathan Busnitz in his Teacher's Guide for our Forerunners of the Faith Curriculum. He writes this. He says, because the Council of Nicaea occurred in the year 325, the leaders who gathered there were also aware of the teachings of prior generations of Christians. Though not authoritative, these writings provided unmistakable testimony to the fact that believers from the first century onward worshipped Jesus Christ as God. Now, let me pause there. The significance of that reality is saying that it's not like the Council of Nicaea just fell out of the sky. It didn't happen in a vacuum. The Council of Nicaea was the result of thoughtful consideration of Christian leaders for three centuries leading into the Council. And as a result of that long line of faithful conviction about the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, the Council of Nicaea was convened and the Nicene Creed was formulated. So Abusnitz is simply noting that the, the Council of Nicaea had a broader historical context. It wasn't just some random occurrence. He continues, For example, around 106, the Roman governor Pliny the Younger wrote a letter in which he explained that the Christians in his region sang hymns to Christ as to a god. So right there, within 10 years of the death of John, if you take a late date um, authorship of the book of Revelation and and a late date of John's death, you have within 10 to 15 years, you've got a robust articulation of the deity of Christ. And that right there, I think, refutes any idea that the deity of Christ was just a convention that came about in the 3rd or 4th century. You have evidence as soon as the turn of the 2nd century that Christians saw Christ as being God. Now, that commitment to the deity of Christ, Busnitz notes, is affirmed repeatedly by earlier church leaders. Here is a representative list from 10 of the earliest Christian writers. And now that brings us to what we're going to be discussing at this time. 
So you'll notice there, if you are looking at your Forerunners of the Faith workbook, there are two quotes from Ignatius of Antioch, who lived between the years 50 to 117 AD. We're going to look at both of those quotes, and um, we're going to talk about them as a group. So uh, just to get us started, I need one boy and one girl who are sitting next to one another with their Forerunners of the Faith workbook to volunteer to read those two quotes from Ignatius. I see Cy and Ellie. (coughs) Y'all can get us started there. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah, whenever you're ready. Very good. So let's stop there and pause. Ellie just read from Ignatius that Jesus Christ, who was conceived by Mary according to God's plan, came both from the seed of David and from the seed of of the Holy Spirit. Now, my question for us as a group is, how does that quote reveal that Jesus is truly God and truly man, or fully God and fully man? What is the evidence in that quote that Ignatius is arguing for? Right? So the seed, right? That The seed referring to the, the origin. He came from the physical, earthly, human lineage of David, right? He's the, he's, he is the seed of David touching on his human nature. But he's also of the seed of the Holy Spirit. And the seed of the Holy Spirit is deity. And if Christ has been conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he has a human nature from his physical lineage, his human lineage, the seed of David down to Mary. And he has a divine nature or a divine lineage, as it were, from the seed of the Holy Spirit. Truly God, truly man, united together. Uh, and do you all remember what we, what we speak of when we talk of the, the union between the divine nature and the human nature of Christ? What's that term that we've used? Hypostatic union. Very good, Wit. And remember, um, remember the, the Latin hypostasis, the, the Latin hypostasis simply means person. So when we say hypostatic, we're just saying the personal union, the union of the divine nature and human nature of Christ united in the person, the single person with two natures. That is the hypostatic union. Now, um, the second quote from Ignatius. So I go ahead and read that for us, please. Very good. So, um, very rich quote there. And my my question for us today is when we read words or phrases talking about um, the eternal invisible one becoming visible, the intangible unsuffering one suffering, is that speaking of God undergoing change? Or are those... Speaking of something else. Okay, what do you think, Wit? Let's let's elaborate there. You're on the right track. Um, I think 
Because we know, just, just, to, just to give you guys some context, God can't change, right? James 1.17, Malachi 3.6, and other passages. God cannot change. He is immutable, right? God is invisible. He cannot become visible. He can manifest his glory visibly, but he himself is an immaterial being. So how do we reconcile this statement from Ignatius with the person of Christ? What do you think? And if you just think Ignatius is wrong, you know you can say that too. I don't think he is wrong, but um, we we can we can go there if you want. But what what did you think? What do you think he's referring to there? In what way did God, the invisible, eternal one, become visible? The intangible, unsuffering one suffer? Yeah. So so second person of the Trinity, fully God, right? He assumed a human nature. So in, in, in doing so, he, by virtue of joining a human nature to his person, he's become visible, right? Right? We know, we know from Scripture. I'll read you a passage again from the Gospel of John. I don't want to butcher it here. But this is exactly what John writes. Pull it up here. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, God, right? That, that eternal, invisible, unchanging, unsuffering, intangible being, and specifically the second person of that being, he took on flesh. And in doing so now, he has manifested the glory of God in his person through Christ's messianic ministry. So any, and this is important, guys, any reference, whether in Scripture or in Orthodox Christian theologians throughout church history, particularly the patristics, any reference to God undergoing change or undergoing suffering when applied to Christ is touching the human nature of Christ. So wit very good on on kind of conceptualizing the reality that God can't change. He does not change. Um, he cannot become visible, right? God cannot act in any way that contradicts his own nature, his own being. Well, let's move on now to Polycarp of Smyrna and the epistle of Barnabas. Who would like to read those two quotes? Okay, Hannah and Mac. Very good. So one of y'all take Polycarp, one of y'all take the Epistle of Barnabas. Very good. Now what what really familiar passage comes to mind when you read a quote like that? Because that quote right there, that's the gospel. That is the same gospel that you and I have believed in the 21st century. This is coming from the 2nd century. Same gospel. Coming from the same source, namely the New Testament. Let me read you a passage and let me, let me know if you hear echoes here. Romans ten nine and 10. One of the most popular Bible verses in all of the New Testament, one of the clearest gospel presentations in all of Scripture. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. You have, at least I see, I see an affirmation of God the Father uh, resurrecting Christ from the dead here in, in Polycarp. I see those uh, who believe in Christ as Lord being saved. I see faith being a um, foundational part of the salvation of sinners here in Polycarp. And I think ultimately Polycarp's getting that from his New Testament. He's not making that up. There's other passages we could go to, but I think a very familiar passage we could we could say, yeah, that agrees with Scripture as, as found in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Okay, Epistle of Barnabas. Very good. So in, in this letter here, uh, which was written, scholars estimate, as you see in your workbook, estimated to be written around 130 AD, um, this is being presented in the form of a question or in the form of a challenge. He's, he's saying, you know, um, if, if the Lord is, is Lord of the whole world, and if he was there with God at the foundation of the world, and he's saying, we're going to make humankind... In our image and likeness, if Jesus as Lord and God and creator did all of those things, then how in the world could he submit to suffer at the hands of humans? How in the world or why in the world would the creature subject himself to the suffering uh, at the hands of humans? And um, that's a question I want us all to consider briefly this morning. Why did Jesus as God, second person of the Holy Trinity... Why did Jesus suffer at the hands of humans? Why did God subject himself to that? Hannah? It's the only way we could ever know salvation. Absolutely. Um, Listen to how Peter puts it. One of the most famous sermons in all of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he was both that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him 
with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the response, of course, Their hearts were pierced, they were convicted, and they said, what shall we do? God came in flesh, he accomplished the predetermined plan of redemption on behalf of sinners. What shall we do in light of this reality? What what do we do, Peter? We hear what you're saying, it's all true. What do we do? How do we respond? He says, verse 38, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn away from your life of autonomy, exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ, follow suit in obedience by being baptized as a self-identifying believer and you will be saved. As Hannah succinctly noted, Jesus had to suffer even though he was God Even though he created all things with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus had to suffer in order to accomplish the redemption of sinners like you and me. And the promise is that if you will turn away from your life of rebellion against God, if you would surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and receive him into your heart by faith, you will be saved. You will be the benefactor of Christ's suffering and his perfect life and his resurrection from the dead. Well, that takes us now to Justin Martyr. You see two quotes there from Justin. He was one of the earliest apologists. You remember we learned about him a few months ago. Who wants to take those two quotes? And really, what we're going to do here, I guess uh, Lily and Witt are going to take that. Uh, The next uh, five quotes that we have here, the next five quotes are really going to focus on the testimony of the prophets from about Jesus being the Messiah and Jesus being God. So as we read the next five quotes, we're going to read two from Justin, one from Tatian, one from Melito of Sardis, and then one from Irenaeus. I want you guys to pay special attention to how this recurring theme of the prophets or the apostles are being written, and we're going to have a discussion about that observation in just a few moments. But for now, uh, let's read the two quotes from Justin. I guess Lily and Witt are going to take those two. Permit me first to recount the prophecies which I wish to do in order to prove that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts. Very good. And the other one? Therefore, these words testify explicitly that he, Jesus, is witnessed by the Father who established these things as deserving to be worshipped as God and his Christ. Very good. And just just by way of just solidifying everything that we've been talking about for the past several weeks with regard to the Council of Nicaea, why it was formed in the first place, do you see why it's such a big deal to say that Jesus is of the same substance as God the Father 
and by extension, God the Holy Spirit. He's not just similar to God, and he's certainly not entirely different from God. Look at this. Justin says that Jesus is deserving to be worshipped as God and as Christ, as God and as Messiah. My friends, as we've said many times, if Jesus is not everything he claimed to be, he's the worst human being to ever walk the face of this world. He was psychotic. He said, I'm the only way to God, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, you've got to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You've got to love me more than than father, mother, sister, or any other loved one you may have in this life. Jesus said all those things and many more. And if he's not God, if Justin's wrong, and if the word of God is wrong, and if Jesus was wrong... Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we're of all men most to be pitied. This whole thing is a waste of time. We're wasting our time here this morning. We're just another club. That's what's at stake. That's why it's so important, guys, the deity of Christ. It's a a foundational importance for our salvation and for our faith. Now let's keep reading. Tation and Melito. Um, I guess it's going to be Michael and Lauren since they haven't read yet. Very good. And just briefly, right? This isn't, this isn't a fairy tale. Look at what, look at what Tatian's saying. He says, we're not just idling tales about God coming in human flesh. This isn't just some fairy tale or make-believe story that we tell ourselves to feel good and religious. This is a matter of eternity. This is a matter of life and death. Michael, take Melito now. Very good. Now, before we take the quotes from um, the two quotes from Irenaeus <clears throat> and we address the question I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, I want you to, to think of something maybe you've never thought of before in light of what Melito of Sardis wrote. It's written in the Old Testament that to be hung on a tree, in the, in the case of Christ, to be crucified is to be under the curse of God. Let me read from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is, salvation, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, you know, Melito keeps going on and on. He mentioned several times he was, he was hanged on a tree. He was hanged on a tree. He was hanged on a tree. He's saying 
And I believe echoing themes, such as what Paul's referring to in Galatians 3, he's saying that Christ, the sinless Son of God, who knew nothing but the Father's smile throughout the course of His earthly life and ministry, He became your curse on the cross. He bore God's wrath in your place on the cross so that you, though you may be the chief of sinners, though you will continue to fall short of the glory of God every day of your life, you can know the Father's smile through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be treated by God as if you had lived Christ's perfect, sinless life by virtue of trusting in Him. Why? How is God able to do that and remain just? Because your, your penalty was paid in full at the cross. Your curse was atoned for at the cross. God's wrath for you was satisfied at the cross. And that great exchange, that double imputation that we've talked about so many times was actualized 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Because Christ became your curse, you in Him become His righteousness. And faith is the means through which that transaction takes place. What a glorious truth from Scripture as reiterated and reaffirmed throughout church history, specifically here by Melito of Sardis. But now let's look to Irenaeus. Let's focus first. I know two of you got to read it uh, in tandem, but I want us to look at that first quote from Irenaeus, and then I want us to revisit one of the common threads that we find in those five quotes we'll have just read together. So uh, who's going to read the two quotes there from Irenaeus. Okay, go ahead. Um, One of y'all read the first one, and then we're going to pause and touch on a question for discussion. Amen. So we've seen now either explicit reference or echoes of Jesus being the Messiah and being God on the basis of the testimony of the prophets or, um, as we just saw from Irenaeus here, the testimony of the apostles as well. Which really the prophetic office and the apostolic office, are, they, they work in tandem with one another. They're not opposed to one another. So it's, it's prophetic in, in either sense, either in prophetic in the sense of of, of foretelling the future or prophetic in the sense of forthtelling realities from God. Now, why do you guys think it is so important to connect the identity of Christ to the testimony of the prophetic witness? Why is it so important for us to have prophetic testimony of the person of Christ in order for us to understand his identity and for us to understand the significance of his identity. What do you guys think? Why does it matter? No, that's, that's, that's the exact, that's exact answer. Like, could you imagine if some guy just showed up in Jerusalem and 
around 20, uh, 24 AD, because if you take a death at the 27 AD, say some guy shows up walking the streets of Jerusalem in 24 AD, round about there, and he starts, you know, making all these claims, and let's just even say for the sake of argument, he even does some pretty remarkable stuff, which we know from Scripture that Jesus did. Many remarkable signs and wonders and miracles. Well, what would that really mean if we didn't have the Old Testament? I mean, we would say, yeah, this guy is wonderful, right? Like, he speaks with authority. He performs signs, wonders, and miracles. But he just kind of came out of thin air. He just kind of just showed up out of nowhere. The Old Testament, as Hannah just pointed out, gives us the context for understanding Christ. We see that he was the long-awaited Savior and Messiah that is foreshadowed in and, and prophecies and through the sacrificial system and through types and shadows and so many other ways throughout the Old Testament, we have that broader context for understanding the significance and the identity of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see time and time again, Jesus will do something. And it'll say, he did this to fulfill this Old Testament scripture. He did that to fulfill that Old Testament scripture. And there's this thread, there's this connection of Christ's identity as revealed in the New Testament, and how it was ultimately foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, going all the way to his incarnation. It's remarkable. So yes, as Hannah wonderfully noted, you got to have the Old Testament to really understand the, the full significance of Christ coming, and really to even understand his identity. Because if he just showed up on the scene it would be a little bit harder for us to wrap our minds, and we're never going to fully wrap our minds around the person and work of Christ, but it would be even harder to wrap our minds around the person and work of Christ if we didn't have the Old Testament, if he just showed up in human history. And God is gracious to have provided us with that record in the Old Testament so we can accurately know him and understand his identity. Now, um, moving on now, uh, Ellie, I think you're going to take that second Irenaeus quote. Okay, very good. Uh, reiterating a lot of what we've talked about already. He's Lord, he's God, he's Savior, he's King. I mean, that, that pretty much takes care of it all, right? Every title, every role that Jesus could fulfill, he does fulfill. He's the perfect God-man. Let's move on now to the next two quotes from Irenaeus. Next two quotes there. Who wants to take that? Who hasn't read a second time? All right, go for it. All right, let's pause there. I think you're going to really like this. We just spent considerable time, or at least I did, maybe belaboring the point, that you've got to have the Old Testament to really have a better means of understanding the significance and the identity of Christ, right? Well, let me show you how that's the case in the form of a group discussion. Let's start with this question. Based on what Irenaeus said in that quote that Lauren read, Christ appeared to people during the Old Testament. Now stop there. Do we? I thought you said Jesus didn't come into the world as the God-man until the turn of the first century. What are you saying? You're saying he was... In the Old Testament, he, he was in the world in the Old Testament? Well, 
Irenaeus says he was, and I'm going to wager that on the testimony of Scripture that the Bible says that he was as well. Um, let's turn it over to you now. Floor's yours. Can you think of any examples of Christ appearing in the Old Testament? I've got two. Two examples. But this may be new for some of you. Sai, what do you think? You got anything? With Jacob, yeah, and he gives him a new name, Genesis 32. I believe that's the right chapter. Let me check. Yep, uh, Genesis 32, 24 to 32. I'll read that really quickly. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, you shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Now, there's no New Testament um, passage that says explicitly that that was Christ. But if you look at the testimony of church history, how that's been interpreted, and I hold the position as well, I believe that is a a manifestation of what theologians call a Christophany. Write that word down, maybe. It's, it's probably brand new. Christophany. That's a appearance or a manifestation of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But very good, Sai. That's a very good, um, very good um, insight there. Any others that you are familiar with? Well, let me give you two. Oh, Michael. Uh, in the furnace, they were like, they were like, and Daniel. Yep. When, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace, and the angel of the Lord comes in there and, and protects them from the flames of the fire. Um, great, great passage. Again, another instance that, though not explicitly in the New Testament, saying that that was Jesus, you look at the history of of how Christians have interpreted the Old Testament, that's what you're going to get. And I likewise share their agreement. Uh, yeah. What, what about the Yeah. He saw the glory of God, right? And he, and he was heading the cleft of the rock, uh, Exodus 34. Um, Absolutely. But let me give you two explicit ones here, because those are all great. All of those are wonderful, and you should use those. But I think let's start with the explicit, and then we can go to the more implicit. Um, in Jude 5, let me give you one. In Jude 5, listen to this. Jude writes, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that Jesus... After saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, some translations may say the Lord, 
But in the Greek, it's Jesus, uh, which is, that's Jesus in Greek, Jesus. And um, you go to Exodus 12, 51, during the, the Passovers just happened, and they are about to flee from Egypt. And listen to this. On that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So in Exodus 12, 51, it's Yahweh, right? Anytime you see in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh, the Lord. And then I think that some English translations put the Lord there just as, you know, a way of trying to be consistent. But the actual Greek is Jesus. And there's a lot of debate uh, amongst English translators as to should we put Jesus or the Lord. Most contemporary New Testament scholars, at least in the conservative realm, are going to go with Jesus. The ESV, I believe, has Jesus um, there, as does, I believe, some of the more modern New American standards. But in any case, that's an explicit one. So Jesus is in the Old Testament leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Let me give you another explicit one. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verse 37 and following, into verse 41. John, the apostle, writes these words. He says, Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Now here's verse 41, here's the key. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory? Well, Back to verse 36, who the he refers to in verse 37, Jesus. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in Isaiah 6, the great temple vision. Isaiah 6, look at this. This is so profound. Isaiah 6, 1 and following. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, says Isaiah, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Do you see the connection there? John says Isaiah saw Jesus hundreds of years before he came as the God-man. It's a Christophany. Learn that word. Very, very significant. And if I could just say this for your benefit and the benefit of our listener 
Notice in John 12, verses 39 and 40, John says, you want to know the reason why people were not believing in Jesus despite all the miracles that he did, despite all of the wonderful teaching that he disclosed to the people of Israel and those he encountered throughout his earthly ministry? Look at this. For this reason, they could not believe, John writes. And, and is it just my interpretation that John comes to this conclusion? He says, no, no, no. Isaiah prophesied why people would reject the Messiah. Let me tell you what Isaiah said. The same Isaiah who saw the glory of Christ hundreds of years before he came into the world. This Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foreshadowed this reality about the people of Israel when their Messiah would come. He, speaking of God, has hardened their eye, he has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. My friends, that is a terrifying reality. And what that should do is if you're in Christ today, you should fall on your face before the living God for giving you eyes to see the truth, ears to hear the truth, and a heart to submit to the truth. What you have, forgiveness of your sin, and personal intimate relationship with God is grace. It's undeserved favor. It's mercy. He's withheld from you what you deserve to receive, which is His wrath and judgment for your sins. God has given you so much. Believer, that should cause you to worship Him mightily. He's not hardened your heart. He's not blinded your eyes. He's given Himself to you as a free gift of grace. That should cause our hearts to overflow with joy. Well, that brings us to the second quote from uh, the little duet there that was going to be reading those quotes from Irenaeus. Uh, It's the one that says, He received testimony. Very good. All right, now moving on to the next two. We have Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian. All right, y'all take that. This word, then the Christ, the cause of both of our being, for he was in God, and of our well-being, this very word now appeared as man, he alone being both, both God and man, the author of all blessings to us. By whom we have been taught to live well, are set on our way to life eternal. The Word, who in the beginning bestowed on us life as the Creator, then He formed us, taught us to live well when He appeared as our teacher. Then, that as God, He might afterwards conduct us to the life of someone Very good. Isn't that rich? Look at that. Jesus, he was, He's the cause of our being. He's the Creator, says Clement. Um, he... Um, is the author of all the blessings we have. And he was our example. He taught us to live well. He, he, he modeled for us the way to life eternal. What a testimony of Christ's glory. And that second quote from uh, that group there, the first from Tertullian, but the second from that group. I mean, that's pretty darn clear, right? Jesus Christ is God. 
Um, I mean, doesn't this just doesn't this just make you guys wonder how a guy like Arius, who lived within 150, 200 years after these guys, he would have had access to these writings. He would have known the tradition. He would have had the scriptures, and he could go so far off. I mean, you have testimony after testimony after testimony from the Word of God, as we saw the past two weeks and as we've revisited today, and testimony after testimony after testimony from leaders in the church in the centuries going to the fourth century, which brought about the Council of Nicaea. I mean, the evidence was there all the time. Very, very tragic what became of Arius. Okay, final two quotes here. Uh, one is from Tertullian and then a guy by the name of Caius. So it should be the group who hasn't read a second time. Good. Now, really quickly, let's pause there. What ancient Christian confession of faith, and if you've been paying attention uh, today and for the past few weeks, this should, be, this should be easy for you to answer, but what ancient Christian confession of faith do you hear echoes of in this quote from Tertullian? Spirit of spirit, God of God, light of light. What confession? Don't ever, don't, don't ever think this. What, what confession or what creed, what council have we been talking about for the past few weeks? The Nicene Creed. There you go. Very good. Um, I mean, this is, this is the Nicene Creed in seed form from a guy who lived a hundred years before it. And notice this. Listen to this phrase. This is remarkable. That which has come forth out of God, referring to Christ, referring to the second person of the Trinity, is that once God and the Son of God, and the two are one. Are they Now, is he talking about person there? Because that would be a contradiction, right? That would open up the door for modalism, that, that God just manifests himself in different modes of existence. Not talking, what do you guys think? He's two in respect to what? Not two in respect to person. Essence. That's right. Two in respect to essence. Two in respect to being, right? Tertullian didn't just contradict himself in a matter of words. Speaking of the essence of God. So, father and son, they are two. The two are one. One in being. One in essence. In this way also, as he is spirit of spirit and God of God, 
He is made second in a manner of existence. Now, if we just stop there, we think, oh, wait, now is he saying that he was created? He's second in manner of existence? Well, no. Look what he says. He's second in position, not in nature. That is to say, he's not a different nature. He didn't come into being as a creation. He's second in position. He's the second person of this being. The first person is the Father. The second person is the Son. And the, and the third person is the Holy Spirit. This is robust Trinitarian orthodoxy right here a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea even came into, uh, came into being. And um, th- this is a powerful quote that I think we should really try to keep in mind as we think about Again, we've talked about this in the past weeks, but you're going to hear things in college or you're going to read things online or you might encounter them on social media and they're going to go, they're going to go along these lines. Well, the Council of Nicaea just made up the deity of Christ and they just arbitrarily figured out what books are going to be in the canon of the New Testament and it was all arbitrary and, and it really just kind of happened in a vacuum. Constantine manipulated the whole thing That's the Council of Nicaea. You say, oh, no, 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 my friend. Let's go to Tertullian 100 years before. And let's go back and follow this long line of Trinitarian and uh, Christological orthodoxy that's consistent with the doctrine that was founded at the Nicene Creed, or in the Nicene Council that that was articulated in the Nicene Creed. But it also, of course, goes back to Scripture. This wasn't some arbitrary thing. There were men both in the Bible and in the immediate generations after Scripture was finalized who held a high view of the deity of Christ and, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity as well. Very important stuff here. should be an encouragement to you as well as a believer. Okay, Caius, that second quote there. Very good. Thanks for reading, guys. So, and this really just dovetails really nicely into what I just said, does it not? I mean, I just said, hey, guys, when you hear the criticisms from today that say the Council of Nicaea was arbitrary, it just fell out of the sky, happened in a vacuum, and there was no real robust understanding of the deity of Christ or Trinitarian orthodoxy, this, that, and the other, right? Now, look at this guy. This guy lives over 100 years before... Council of Nicaea, and he's only, give or take, 100 to 120 years after the apostles. Now look what he says. Listen to what Caius says against the modern-day critics. The Council of Nicaea was a sham. It all fell out of the sky. It was arbitrary. Constantine manipulated it. Whatever the 
um, accusation is going to be. Listen to what Caius says. He says, who is ignorant? This is a rhetorical question. Who is ignorant of the writings of Irenaeus and Melito and the rest, others, which declare Christ to be God and man? He's saying, hey guys, there's all kinds of works out there that proclaim Christ as God. They're out there. You can go read Irenaeus. You can go read Melito. You can read all the rest of faithful Christians who've written on the subject and taught on the subject and discussed the subject. They're out there. This isn't something we just made up. There is a replete and vast array of evidence. And oh, he's not finished. Notice what else he says here. Go read the Psalms. Go read the Word of God, Caius says. There is plenty of evidence for the deity of Christ. Guys, this is less than 200 years after Christ was here. And you've got a full-orbed view of the deity of Christ. Use this. Use this when you see the critic on social media. Bring this into um, discussion when your professor or your unbelieving coworker or family member tries to challenge you with unsubstantiable claims. And do so, of course, in gentleness and with patience and with love and a care for them to come to a knowledge of the truth. But bring this up. These, this is great evidence. And it should be great encouragement for you as believers in 2021 or 2022. 21st century, year 2022. Um, but as Buznitz uh, writes here by way of conclusion, as these examples demonstrate, believers from the beginning of the church recognize the truth about Jesus Christ. He is truly God and truly man, the one mediator between God and men. And as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, to remember, church history is important. We should study it. It's of great value and great benefit and great encouragement to believers. But the Scripture, that's the ultimate authority. If it's not in the Scripture, we don't submit to it. We don't embrace it. But listen, Paul, 1 Timothy 2, early 60s A.D., There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator, one God, man, Jesus Christ. That is who we believe. That is who we serve. That is who we worship. That is who we proclaim. I pray that you'll be found faithful this week and in the weeks to come and in the years to come, as long as the Lord gives you life to do so to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, His deity, His human nature, His life, death, and resurrection on behalf of all who will call upon Him in faith. And may we glorify Him in every aspect of our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer, and we will prepare our hearts for corporate worship this morning. Lord God, You are so gracious to us. You are rich in mercy. You are the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and you have not left your people without your truth at any period in redemptive history, whether it be in the Garden of Eden, 
the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15, when you declared that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and have victory over his seed, all the way through Christ living the perfect life that we could not live but that we owe to you, dying the death that we deserve and bearing the wrath we deserve on the cross. And he did so in the place of all who would ever believe so that God, by your grace and also in accordance with your justice, those who would ever be saved, those who would ever believe could be treated as if they had lived his life because Christ was treated on the cross as if he had lived their life. That great exchange, that glorious reality of double imputation modeled at the cross some 2,000 years ago. And Lord, because of his resurrection from the dead, we know from various places in your word that that was your stamp of approval on his work. That rich thread beginning in the garden being accomplished in the fullness of time at Calvary, and now, God, being proclaimed to all corners of the world until the return of Christ. That is where our joy is found, Lord. That is what we base our life upon, to know you, to know Christ, to know your Holy Spirit, and to make you, the triune God, known throughout all the world. And, Father, may we commit ourselves to that end and and may we be motivated by that end to study your word more deeply and to also father commit ourselves to knowing church history so that we can not only better understand your word as helpful as church history is to that end but to also show others you've been faithful to your covenant promises you've always had a people And you're continuing to build a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, even now as we say this prayer in Edna, Texas, in 2022. Father, I pray that these realities would be firmly impressed upon our minds and in our hearts as we leave this place, that we would be greatly encouraged, that we would leave here with inexpressible joy, and that for those of us who are about to go worship you corporately, at FBC Edna, may we ascribe glory and honor and praise to you from genuine hearts that want to see you magnified in this church and in our lives. Remove any distractions from us that may keep us from that end. Pray for those who are about to leave, as well as us who will leave this location after corporate worship. I pray that you would keep us safe. I pray that you would provide us with physical rest today as we by your grace, are able to receive spiritual rest for our souls by attending to the means you have instilled on the Lord's day. And may we be prepared to begin a new week to put you on display in the various contexts you have placed us into. Oh God, may we be found to be good and faithful servants. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us first in Christ Jesus. And we pray all this in his holy and matchless name, which is above every name. Amen.